0: What's up to my mother and my father? The market's so hot, we need some water. S&P 500 hitting 4,000 for the first time ever. Bond yields keep climbing. Investors are like, whatever. Government keeps spending. That's good for my portfolio. As long as I'm investing in the right sectors, though, you've got to keep your eyes on the market's rotation. Use relative strength in your allocation. Focus on the price. There's no need to impress. And just roll with us on the Investopedia Express. It's been a long holiday weekend, so let's set the table. The second quarter is off to a blazing start with the S&P 500 pushing above 4000 for the first time last week on the heels of President Biden's $2.2 trillion infrastructure plan proposal. This week marks the real beginning of the battle over that spending bill because paying for it means raising corporate taxes. The Biden administration is calling for corporate taxes to be raised from 21% to 28%, Partially reversing the 2017 Trump tax cuts that took them from 35% all the way down to 21%. It's also calling for a global tax for companies operating outside of the U.S. and the closing of several other tax loopholes. That won't be easy, and Republican leaders are already calling for a much more slimmed down bill. The labor market is showing signs of strength as 916,000 jobs were added in March, far more than the 675,000 expected by economists. Before we really dive into the second quarter, let's break down the first quarter by the numbers. There were over 608 million global COVID-19 vaccinations. There was $4 trillion in global stimulus spending. The global stock market added $5 trillion in market cap. The value of negative yield in global bonds dropped to $6 trillion. The 30-year U.S. Treasury bond delivered its worst return since 1918. That's 103 years ago. It was the worst quarter for investment-grade bonds since 1980 and the worst first quarter for gold since 1982. Who are the big winners? Cyclical stocks, of course, those that benefit from an economic recovery. Energy stocks were up 29%, oil prices jumped 22%, banks jumped 23%, and copper, good old Dr. Copper, was up 13% for the quarter. Where did the money flow to? Global equities took in $372 billion last quarter. That's an all-time record. Emerging markets took in $65 billion. Tech took in $30 billion. And financials took in $24 billion in the first quarter. It's been all about stocks and cryptocurrencies so far this year. Keep that sector rotation in the equity markets in mind when we go inside the charts with JC Peretz of All-Star Charts later in the show. But first, let's get set up for the week ahead. The earnings calendar is ultra light this week, but there are three companies we have our eyes on. Carnival Cruise Lines reports on April 7th. We know it may be until November before it sets sale again, but what do bookings look like for the Christmas season? Conagra Brands reports on April 8th, and we know food prices have been soaring. What's that done to its bottom line, and does it expect the commodity super cycle to continue? Levi Strauss also reports on April 8th. Is anyone buying new blue jeans to go back to school or back to work? enough of these sweatpants already. I want some crisp blue jeans and some fly white sneakers like it's the first day of school. Chipmakers will be in the spotlight this week, and we know there's a global shortage of microchips and the automakers can't get enough of them to build cars to match demand. Remember, chips are the new transport stocks. Intel will be rolling out its new Ice Lake chipset this week, and Applied Materials has an investor event. Will they both be ramping up production to meet the insatiable demand? On the economic front, the Institute for Supply Management Service Sector Survey will be released later this week, and this comes after the Institute's manufacturing survey came in last week at the highest level since 1983. If you feel the planet heating up again, that's because factories and industrial production is at full tilt right now. The Federal Reserve will release the minutes from its last meeting on Wednesday afternoon. We know where the Fed stands, so we shouldn't be surprised by anything in that report, except maybe more detail on which Fed governors think we'll see rates rise soonest. At least seven members of the Federal Open Market Committee said they expect to raise rates at the end of 2022, a little sooner than Chairman Powell's statements that it won't be until 2023. And the chicken sandwich battles just got really interesting. Forgive my obsession with all things fried chicken, but Shake Shack is launching a new Korean-style fried chicken sandwich made with crispy chicken breast glazed with gochujang sauce on top of a white kimchi slaw topped with toasted sesame seeds on a bun. Wendy's and McDonald's already rolled out their latest chicken sandwich salvos, and of course, Popeye's has its buttermilk fried chicken sandwich, so it's getting pretty intense in the coop. I'll do the fieldwork and try Shake Shack's new offering next weekend and report back to you. You can count on me for that. I'll take one for the team. U.S. stock markets continue to hit record highs as investors cheer on government spending and low interest rates. But it's a market of stocks and sectors, and they are not all as strong as the headlines would suggest. It's also a global stock market, and not every country is flexing its equity market muscles lately. JC Peretz, the founder of All Star Charts and a good friend to Investopedia, joins The Express again to go inside the charts to give us a real health check. Welcome back to The Express, my friend.
1: What's up, Caleb? Thanks for having me.
0: Always good to see you. Where's the strength in the U.S. right now? It's obviously we've seen this sector rotation. You write a lot about it, but where do you feel like we have the most strength from a sector
1: perspective? You know, it's hard to ignore the strength that we've seen in industrials. You could say what you want about financials. Financials have looked great for sure. Regional banks, broker dealers, capital markets, even insurance. Remember Berkshire Hathaway is the largest component of the XLF. So you're getting industrial exposure there. So if you tell me, JC, Q1, like who wins? Who wins the trophy? I mean, hard to argue with industrials. One thing I'd like to point out is when you go to Europe, you're seeing a breakout in the Euro stock 600 Right. Which is a broad measure of European equities breaking out of a 20 year base. I mean, the joke this week was that I've been waiting for this to happen since I was in high school in the 90s for Europe to break out of this base. And that's only funny because it's true. And by the way, Europe has double the exposure to industrials than the United States does.
0: Right. When you think about the manufacturing economies in Europe, the Germanies of Europe, the real strong manufacturing countries that really love this type of economic activity and the demand that they're seeing all around the world, it's not a surprise that you're seeing the strength there. But it's surprising that it took 20 years, given the amount of economic activity we've seen over the past couple of decades.
1: Well, I'm sure you can speak to the economic activity a little better than me. I'll tell you what Price has done. And it's been just a severe underperformer And a lot of that, remember, Caleb, has to do with the fact that Europe has a third of the exposure to technology than the United States has. I mean, literally, the United States has three times the exposure to tech. And by the way, that's not including Amazon, Facebook and Google and netflix which are not in the tech sector they are in the communications or the consumer discretionary sector so if you add those in just think about how much exposure to growth stocks the united states has while other countries around the world simply do not they have much more exposure to financials and industrials and materials and energy and these economies are based on vastly different types of companies in the United States that investors in the US have been rewarded for being irresponsibly exposed to tech and growth and having that home country bias. American investors have been rewarded handsomely for that sort of behavior. Meanwhile, around the world, Countries with more natural resource and banking exposure that have had that same home country bias have been penalized for it, right? They have a lot more exposure to value stocks, and they've struggled because of that. And I think that over the last seven, eight months or so, we've seen that shift where now it's the value areas of the market are the outperformers and the American investors with that home country bias and overexposure to growth. Are really paying the price
0: i noticed that canada i was looking at msci canada one of the best performing countries sector if you look around the world in the first quarter again you named it a lot heavy industrial heavy mining all right pretty big banks. big banking sector and
1: cannabis banks for sure three times the exposure to materials more exposure to industrials or five times the exposure to energy What are these sectors? Value, 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 value. And why has Canada and Australia, for that matter, struggled for so long to keep up with American stocks? Because they're loaded with banks and natural resources, right? But now they're benefiting from that exposure. So you know, when people ask me, JC, is it just one ratio, like the IWF versus IWD, which would be the Russell growth versus Russell value, which obviously we pay very close attention to, we always have, a lot of people do. It's bigger than that right? It's it's more than just this one index versus the other index. You're seeing it around the world. Look at Singapore breaking out. Guess what? Singapore's 50% financials. What about
0: China? China was the big growth stock market, was the roaring lion for most of 2020 through the pandemic, first in, first out, a lot of more controls, a lot of money invested in their technology. One of the worst performing countries around the world when we look at the last quarter.
1: Yeah. You know, when you look at something like EEM, which you're going to have a lot of China in there, EEM doesn't look like your parents' EEM. What used to be a natural resource play, like when I first got in this business 20 years ago, and emerging markets were ripping, it wasn't Alibaba, Tencent, Taiwan Semiconductor. It wasn't that at all. So you're looking at much more tech exposure, so they're going to get hit accordingly, just like they benefited accordingly when tech was a leader.
0: We talked about six months ago, five, six months ago, we were starting to see the emerging markets break out because the economic recovery was beginning. You focus on price. I'll focus on on some of the broader other fundamentals that were going on. But you did note that emerging markets were going to roar and they did through the back half of, of 2020. Where's the sort of sentiment there now? What are you seeing through your charts as you look across emerging markets around the world?
1: Yeah, I don't think that investors have enough exposure to emerging markets. Again, because over the last decade anytime they took money out of america and put it anywhere else they were not thrilled with the consequences of that decision right so you know it's one of those things where like you know the kid touches the stove one too many times stop touching the stove you idiot right so just when you need to start touching the stove again it's very difficult for investors i mean just think about it caleb think about investors who or financial advisors or investors that financial advisors have spoken to that have been convinced that technology is changing the world and solar and we're going to save the planet and clean energy and like all this nonsense all of those names have worked because they're all growth stocks not because they're saving the world or you're going to save the planet through your portfolio it's a bunch of nonsense it's like one of the best wall street scams that we've seen in a while and it's working they're making a lot of money off that at the expense of investors the truth is it's the dirtiest the countries that are taking stuff out of the ground the companies building the machines to take stuff out of the ground the stuff itself the stuff and the companies that destroy the planet the most Those are the ones that we want to buy. Those are the ones that are going to, in my opinion, going to continue to do well. And then just think about the countries that have that exposure. Something like Chile is making new 52-week highs, just closed at new highs. Largest copper producer in the world. So think about what the world where values outperforming, where natural resources and commodities. I mean, Caleb, in my opinion, I've been saying this since last year. This is the beginning, in my opinion, of a commodity super cycle. Imagine copper breaks out of this 15-year base, which I think there's a hell of a lot higher chance that it is than it just rolling over and just turning into a major top in copper. I'm just not seeing that. What does the world look like with $10 copper, $200 crude oil? What does that world look like? Are investors prepared for that? My conclusion is a, is a hard no. They are not. Now, is copper going to 10 Is oil going to 200 I have no idea. That's not the point point is if we were entering that world which yeah i certainly think that possibility is on the table most investors are not prepared for that a period where technology underperforms for a long period of time and those other areas take over investors aren't ready for that so look at the countries that have that exposure chile is just a, one example
0: let's look around at some of the other commodities because The Fed says no inflation. Everyone's worried about inflation, but look at lumber, look at coffee, look at cocoa, look at all these other commodities that we actually buy every single day. Now, you look inside these markets, you look at each one of these things, you look at thousands and thousands of charts every week. What are you seeing apart from the industrial metals, apart from the the fossil fuels, where you're seeing a lot of strength and a lot of momentum?
1: Yeah, lean hogs breaking out, lumber obviously doing what it's been doing for a long time. Uh, If you want to talk about inflation, look at the inflation-protected Treasury Security we call them tips relative to the traditional non inflation protected treasuries. And they just went out uh, last month at new six year highs. You know, look at five year, five year forwards and all the inflation expectations. Like we're seeing more and more signs of inflationary forces. Why are interest rates going up? Why are commodities doing what they're doing? Crude oil was trading negative uh, less than a year ago. Now it's in the mid 60s or pushing the mid 60s. One thing that I will say. And you mentioned the other base metals, right? It's not just copper. It's aluminum, zinc, tin, lead, nickel. I would encourage all investors to keep a very close eye on this copper-gold ratio. The ratio of copper to gold moves tick for tick with the U.S. 10-year yield. And if you think about what the broader implications of higher interest rates and the outperformance of financials happening with that, I don't think that's a coincidence Gold has been the worst place to be on earth, maybe other than treasury bonds. Gold has been, the, especially in the commodities market, you could have bought literally any commodity in the world except gold last summer and done very, very well. Gold just went out at the end of March at the lowest level since May of last year relative to the S&P 500 lowest level since 2018. And relative to the NASDAQ, gold went out at the lowest level since 2001, making 20-year relative lows to the NASDAQ. And the NASDAQ didn't even have a great quarter. So just think about that so or a great month for that matter so just think about what commodities are doing well and which ones are not the safest areas quote unquote gold japanese yen u.s treasury bonds slaughtered all of them terrible one's worse than the next right those are the safest areas in the world what are the ones doing the best you said it lumber crude oil copper heating oil commodities where investors are trying to put money to work when there is clearly risk appetite right and those are the assets that they want to buy so it's a flight from safety is what we've seen so yeah i think that's inflationary no doubt about it and i think that's good for stocks let's take it back to the
0: u.s stock market which keeps hitting those record highs, as I mentioned, maybe not in the NASDAQ, but we are seeing the the value rotation in force right now and a lot of money coming into the market and folks looking for yield. Where are you seeing beyond the industrials in the stocks that were so popular and so strong in 2020, the stay-at-home stocks have faded a lot? Do you see just this complete rotation out of those or do you see a potential possibility for those to sort of recover a lot of the shine that they had last year?
1: Yeah, I think there's a time and a place for everything, Caleb, right? And a lot of these names did very, very well last year. And I I just want to point to something that we like to call relative strength, which is the performance and, and the behavior of one market versus another. In this case, we're talking about individual stocks relative to the rest of the market. And in March of last year, in the depths of the correction, markets were getting destroyed, bonds were ripping. We were running our scans to see which stocks were bucking the trend. And... There's wisdom in relative strength. And the names that were popping up on the radar were Newmont Mining, DocuSign, Regeneron, Zoom, Activision. These were the names that were popping up on the radar. And those ended up being some of the best performers afterwards because there was, there was wisdom in relative strength. And those names did really well. The problem with most investors, which is good for those of us who are aware of it because people have egos and we can exploit their egos for profit for ourselves And they think that because they did so well last year, right, and they've convinced themselves that they're therefore smart, smarter, because of that, now they're like attached. They have an emotional connection to some of these names, and they think that that will continue. It's very difficult for humans to be able to kind of put those aside and move on to something else. It's perfectly natural to find that emotional connection. But we need to expect that to happen and avoid acting upon that, right? So what? where's the relative strength today? It's not in those names, right? So no, I don't think they're going to come back and become leaders. And I want to point everybody to 2004, 2005, 2006. This was a period of time in the market that the, the stocks did very well. S&P, Dow, everything went up, right? Interest rates were going up. Value was outperforming growth. Energy, financials, industrials, emerging markets, those were the leaders. Did tech go up in that environment? Did growth stocks go up in that environment? Yes. Just they didn't do as well as the other stuff. I think that's the sort of environment we're in. That growth and that tech, you could you could be okay in some of these names, but I think it's going to be way easier to make a lot more money in the value areas like industrials, like in financials, like in energy, like in materials, all those things that nobody owns.
0: <laughs> Beyond being an expert in technical analysis, you're also a sommelier, and I'd love to get your wine pairings, especially as we head into spring. Going to be doing a lot of fish dishes this spring. So let's, let's throw out a dish like a nice soft white fish with lemon capers and butter. I'm going to do some sautéed vegetables on the side of that, maybe a little jasmine rice. What am I pairing? What wine am I pairing with that?
1: Well, it sounds to me like you got a little Bronzino in your mind there. You read um, my mind. That's the way to do it. So if you're going to go Bronzino, you're going to go Mediterranean sea bass, which is what that is. Drink local. So, I mean, I think you got to go with an acidico from Santorini, right? So this is going to be volcanic soil because that's where that volcano was in Santorini. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's absolutely stunning how gorgeous it is. And um, that volcanic soil is going to give you that bright acidic acidico. Good luck spelling it. There's a lot of uh, Y's and S's and whatnot, K's, and you know the Greek wines are like impossible to spell. I do the best I can though, uh, but go with an go nice and cold on a, on a warm day with the fish and the veggies, with the lemon, Woo! that'll do it.
0: That sounds delicious. All right, now let me throw another one at you. I'm going to do more of a veggie dish, some, gro- some roasted vegetables. I may have a little bit of uh, seafood with that, but it's going to be a heavy veggie dish, roasted veggies, olive oil, salt, pepper, and maybe some sides of some uh, legume, maybe some garbanzo beans uh, fried up. You know, with some onions, what do I want to pair with that? Something a little bit lighter, a little bit, a little sprightlier.
1: Yeah, I'm th- well, for that, I mean, I would go white burgundy, really. The real Chardonnay, not that popcorn from Napa, you know, w- respectfully. I mean, I have friends that make a uh, Chardonnay Napa that's not that. But if you want real Chardonnay, you're going to go to Cote Bon. You know what I'm saying? You know, you're going to get a, a nice white burgundy with that. Another interesting twist there. You can go white burgundy because you're going to get a little creaminess for the beans and stuff like that. But you know what you can also do? You can do a vino verde, which is going to be Portuguese. Delicious. And you get a little slightly sparkle, right? So it's not sparkling wine, but there's a little bit of residual CO2 there that you're going to get that I really enjoy. And it's a crowd pleaser. Every time I bring Bino Verde to a party, everyone's like, wow, JC, this is delicious. And it's going to cost you 10 bucks.
0: I know it's $10. It's delicious. The bottle looks cool. The wine looks cool. It's refreshing. And it just speaks of spring. So great tip there. I'm going to try both of those wines. I'm going to cook both of those dishes. And I'm going to take your advice with your technical analysis. JC Peretz from All Star Charts. Thanks for all the goodness. And thanks for being such a good friend to Investopedia.
1: Hey, you got it anytime, kid.
0: It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term the educated investor needs to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Sarah in Richmond, Virginia. What's up, RVA? How's the Continental Diner doing down there? I love that place. Sarah suggests support and resistance this week. And because we got technical with JC Peretz earlier in the show, we're going to stick with technical analysis this week. Support is a price level where a downtrend can be expected to pause due to a concentration of demand or buying interest. As the price of assets or securities drops, demand for the shares increases, thus forming the support line. Meanwhile, resistance zones arise due to selling interest when prices have increased. Once an area or zone of support or resistance has been identified, Those price levels can serve as a potential entry or exit point because, as a price reaches a point of support or resistance, it will do one of two things. Bounce back away from the support or resistance level or violate the price level and continue its direction until it hits the next support or resistance level. Traders use support and resistance lines to help them map out the potential future prices of assets when they trade. Think of them as guardrails to know the range a stock or security is moving in. Great suggestion, Sarah. You'll be getting a pair of the butter soft and very chic Investopedia socks in the mail, and they will look sweet when you go to the Continental for brunch. Well, April is Financial Literacy Month here in the US. It's our favorite month of the year, even though we think every month here is Financial Literacy Month. Financial literacy is the foundation of your relationship with money, and it is a lifelong journey of learning. The earlier you start, the better off you'll be because education is the key to success when it comes to money and your financial life is likely to become more complicated as you get older. We think it should be a mandatory part of primary education, but unfortunately, it's only a required course in public schools in just 17 states in the U.S. Given that college students graduate with an average of $32,000 in debt due to student loans and credit card debt, we think it's imperative that young people learn the basics of credit, debt, budgeting, saving, and investing before they face that burden. It's never too late to become financially illiterate, but the earlier you start, the better. We're adding some basic financial literacy lessons to our website and social media channels, including Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok throughout the month. And I'll be taking questions on those platforms and answering them on Instagram Live with some of the top experts in the field throughout April. Follow us there and enter your questions about budgeting, saving, and investing, and we'll get to as many as we can. Well, in honor of Financial Literacy Month, we'll let Kyron Gibson and his eight-year-old son, King, take us out this week. Kyron has been teaching his son financial literacy since he could walk and he posted this video of him quizzing his son King on some basic financial terminology. This clip came out last year and it's one of the best things I've ever seen on the internet. Okay what's assets? Assets are things that bring money to your bank account.
1: What's liabilities?
0: Liabilities are things that take money out your bank account.
1: Entrepreneurship is the act of becoming an entrepreneur. What's entrepreneurship?
0: entrepreneurship is a process of setting up a business or business
1: taking on a greater than normal financial risk what's an entrepreneur entrepreneur is a
0: person that organizes and operates
1: a business or businesses also taking on a greater than normal
0: financial risk what's
1: financial mean money and what's risk mean chance come on what does it mean to own stock
0: when you own a share of a company come on that's so good and check it out the full clip and if you have kids or young people in your life give them the gift of financial literacy too We have free lessons and tutorials on our website and on our YouTube channel, and we'll be posting short videos and hosting Ask Me Anythings with experts on Instagram throughout the month. So follow us there if you're a social media person, and stay smart with us all month long. Thanks for riding on The Express this week, and we'll see you a little further on Down the Line.